The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So we've been announcing the start of this Sermon on the Mount series for a while now, and it, it's, uh, we're almost there, <laughs> but we're not quite there yet. I, I've made an, a number of references to the Holy Spirit in recent sermons, particularly when we're at the tail end of the um, Bible Project series. And then uh, Pastor Lester even preached a message on the Holy Spirit, and if you haven't heard that, would really uh, urge you to go to the um, sermon archives and have a listen to that message as well. I did feel, though, that even after all these references to the Holy Spirit, there were some of these kind of loose ends still, kind of dangling there, uh, of wanting to be a little bit more explicit about this teaching on the Holy Spirit, because um, it's just such a vital, important truth that we need to understand about what God wants of us to be followers of Jesus who are living this kind of spirit-filled life and what that life looks like. And so for the next two Sundays before we launch into the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to be talking about this um, um, topic of the Holy Spirit and what uh, the Holy Spirit wants of us, okay? Um, So back in January, I talked about the different covenants, that are found in the Bible. So we have the covenant of Noah, the covenant of Abraham, uh, the covenant with Israel, and the covenant with David. And then in the New Testament, we get what's known as the new covenant that was given to us through Jesus Christ. And if you remember from that message, one of the big questions that arises is whether these are conditional or unconditional covenants. In other words, are the promises that are found in these covenants that God gives to uh, the people that he's making the covenant with uh, dependent on the other party keeping their end of the bargain? Or are these just unconditional, meaning regardless of how they act, God is nevertheless going to keep that promise? And if you remember back then, um, when you look more closely at these covenants, what it becomes clear is that there are actually both conditional and unconditional aspects to all of these covenants. Okay? Um, and when we look particularly at the new covenant that you and I are a part of through Jesus, what we can also say is that to say that we are saved by grace Well, that does mean that we cannot earn our salvation through our good works. But it does not mean that we can live however we want, as long as we just simply agree to a set of facts about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because even in the new covenant given to us through Jesus, there are covenant expectations that we do live a life of holiness and obedience before God. I'll give you just a couple examples of the plethora of them that are in Scripture. Romans 2, verse 6 to 8, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. So you will be Repaid according to what? 
Not what you believe, but what you have done. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now that's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? About the expectation that God has on his people. In other words, there's this danger of seeing our righteousness in Jesus as nothing more than a status change of basically being declared innocent when we were once declared guilty. Now, that is a part of our salvation. It's this doctrine known as justification. And it's very important. But our salvation is more than that. Because God not only declares us righteous through the work of Jesus, but as his followers, he also calls us to, in fact, be righteous. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 to 6. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? I think there there are a lot of these kind of verses in the Bible. And they tend to trip us up. Because it sounds like what John is basically saying is that if you are a Christian... You will never sin again. But the problem is that just earlier in his letter, uh, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I think the problem is this. When we read verses like this, we assume that what the New Testament writers are talking about is perfection. Perfection. But I don't think that that's what he means when he says that you will not sin. He is not talking about perfection here. He is talking about growth, about overcoming sin and living righteously. Not perfectly, but at least growing into that direction in our life. He is, in other words, not saying that it is impossible for a Christian to sin ever again after they're saved. But he is saying that that life of sin is incompatible with the confession of Jesus as Lord. So then the question arises, how do we live this life? Because I think all of us have felt the very real impact of sin in our life. Well, unlike all the other covenants... In the new covenant, God promises to give us the Holy Spirit who will empower us to live the life of obedience and holiness that he requires. This is why the Holy Spirit is such a critical part of this gospel message. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. 
And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul points out that Jesus has set us free from this law of sin and death, and by that he has fully met the requirements of the law on our behalf. And then he describes those who have been set free by Jesus as those, therefore, now who must not live according to that flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then in the verses that follow, he describes what life in that Spirit looks like. In Romans 8, verses 5 to 9, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. What Paul is saying is, left to our own willpower, we cannot live a life that pleases God, even if we wanted to. But the problem is that it is compounded by the fact that we don't even want that life for ourselves. Because our natural bent is hostility toward God. But when God's spirit lives in us, it changes everything. We can now live lives that please God and have the power to do the things that he wants us to do. Look at what he says in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of of the Spirit. Paul is saying that the redemption that Jesus won for us on the cross is the blessing to all nations that was promised to Abraham in his covenant with him. And then he equates that blessing to Abraham with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the people of the new covenant. In other words, the pouring out of the Spirit is a key part of the good news of the gospel because now unlike all of the other covenants through that ministry of the holy spirit we now are empowered to live in faithfulness to the covenant that god has made with us again not perfectly but ever more growing into the likeness of his son well this brings us to one of the big debates about the holy spirit that has divided the church for pretty much as long as the church has been around. And it is this question. Is this work of the Spirit something automatic for all believers? Or is it something that we must do in order to seek it? Okay? There are some who do argue that all of these passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament that talk about what the Holy Spirit is doing in us are automatic for all believers. 
In other words, it's just simply informing you of what the Spirit is already doing in you. In, in fact, if you are a believer in Jesus, it's already happening in you. You don't have to do anything. There's no response being asked. It's just telling you this is the way it is. It's already all ours in Jesus. I mean, after all, didn't we just read in Romans 8, 9 that if you don't have the spirit of Christ, then you don't even actually belong to him. And we also find passages like John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the spirit of God says Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, unless the Spirit is in you, you cannot even testify that Jesus is Lord. So the Bible does tell us that every true believer does, in fact, have the Holy Spirit living in them, giving them the assurance that you are one of God's children. But the Bible also tells us that we need to actively seek more of the Spirit's influence in our lives as well. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. By commanding us to walk in the Spirit, Paul is implying that it's actually possible to not walk in the Spirit, isn't he? That we can live out of step with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In other words, Paul prays that the spirit would provide more wisdom, more revelation to believers. So why? So that the end result of that is that they might know God better. Again, if this was automatically given to all believers, then why would Paul even feel the burden to pray this for us? John Piper says, even though the Holy Spirit is not in parts, in pieces, like I've got four and you've got six pieces of the Spirit, even though the Spirit doesn't come in pieces, the experience of him does. It's partial. It's always partial in this life, even when it's experienced as fullness. So what Piper is arguing is you can't chop up the Holy Spirit as if he were some kind of impersonal force in the universe that's just energizing us. That's a wrong theology. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a wholeness. He is a person, a being. But how we experience the Spirit in our lives can vary in quantity. From believer to believer. Paul continues in Ephesians 1, looking at verse 18 to 19 now. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You see, when Paul is talking about this wisdom and this revelation, he isn't talking about head knowledge here. He isn't praying that you might receive more teaching so that you can have better doctrine about God and about the salvation that's been given to you. I mean, that's important, but that is not Paul's prayer here. He wants them to know it in their heart, in their heart, 
the hope to which God has called them. He wants them to know with passion the benefits of having Jesus and to know experientially the power that is available to them in Christ. And that is the work that the Spirit does in us when we seek him in that way. That is why Paul commands the church in Ephesians 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is an absolute necessity to the vitality as followers of Jesus Christ, of being able to live out the Christian life. And so what Paul is saying is, if the Spirit is so vital for us to become made in the image of Christ, then seek the Spirit with all of your heart. Seek for more and more of the presence of the Spirit in your life. I find it really actually interesting that, Jesus, that the Paul compares filling with the Spirit with being drunk on wine. Um, I was kind of debating whether to share this or not, but it's, it's not an ICC member, so I, I think it's fine. But I, I know someone who, under normal circumstances, is really, really quiet and withdrawn. And it, it always felt like pulling teeth, trying to have a conversation with this guy. And the truth is, uh, whenever we, I've seen him at gatherings together, uh, he always seems really restless and distracted. Like, he never really ever wants to be there at these gatherings. But a few beers in, (laughs) a few glasses of wine later, and he becomes a totally different person. He actually becomes kind of fun to be around, you know? He warms up, and he becomes so much friendlier, really talkative. And sometimes when he's had enough, he actually becomes physically affectionate and just starts hugging people and telling them how much he loves you. It's, you know, I understand now why they call alcohol a social lubricant, you know? It really works. Um, Listen, I don't think Paul is equating filled with the Spirit with drunkenness, okay? But I do think that he's talking about a felt impact that enlivens these truths in the heart of the believer, filling us with something that is real and experienced. Look at the emotional reaction that the Spirit caused in Jesus' heart in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Do you see that? This is the Holy Spirit at work in the Son, igniting joy in his heart for his disciples. Listen, we can know all of the right truths And believe all of the right things. And yet we all know what it's like to go through seasons of our life. When the truth is, if we're really honest, we're not moved by any of it. We feel empty. Maybe even dead inside. And this is why we need the Spirit's work in our lives. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be open to these truths. 
not just filling your head with knowledge, but that something about this truth would awaken something in that cold heart to make it alive and warm again. The Holy Spirit is often associated with the experiencing of power that enables us to live the life that God wants of us. Referring to the Holy Spirit, Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, verse 49, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, referring to the Holy Spirit, and he says, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then later in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, what the New Testament teaches over and over again is it is through that filling of the Holy Spirit that we are empowered to live the life that God wants of us, of obedience and faithfulness to him. Paul gives us this warning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now let me say this. It's worth pausing here for a moment and thinking about what Paul is actually claiming here in this teaching. What he is saying is that here we worship a God who is infinite in his wisdom and in his power. And he not only saved us, but elsewhere in his other letters, he tells us that this God is committed to his desire to forming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And we've also established that the filling of the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical for that process of Christ-like transformation to occur in us. And yet here is a mystery that is really hard to understand. is that God has granted to you and I both the ability and the authority to either receive or reject that Spirit's work in our life. In other words, God is not going to force himself on us. But he wants it to be in response to our surrender, to our seeking of the Spirit that he gives us more of his spirit. And I think the truth is, we can all be very fatalistic about this. God is just going to do what he's going to do. Who am I to think that I can affect any of that? But the problem is the Bible does say we can reject or resist the spirit's work in our life. And so let me ask you this. What are the ways that you may be quenching the spirit this is a difficult question to ask isn't it what are the ways that you may be quenching the spirit's desire to work in your life what are the ways that you're resisting him let me say this i believe we are quenching the spirit anytime we attempt to do anything by our strength alone, without speaking, seeking the Spirit's power in what we do. Francis Chan in Forgotten God writes, for some reason we don't think we need the Holy Spirit. We don't expect the Holy Spirit to act. 
Given our talent set, experience, and education, many of us are fairly capable of living rather successfully, according to the world standards, without any strength from the Holy Spirit. Even our church growth can happen without him. Let's be honest. If you combine a charismatic speaker, a talented worship band, and some hip, creative events, people will attend your church. Yet this does not mean that the Holy Spirit of God is actively working and moving in the lives of the people who are coming. It simply means that you have created a space that is appealing enough to draw people in for an hour or two on Sunday. And that quote terrifies me. Because I have to ask myself as a pastor, could that be true of ICC? Are we just ahead of the curve, a little better than most other churches in the Chicagoland area, and so we could draw a crowd? As Chan points out, one of the reasons why we don't seek him at all, or if very little, is that we just, frankly, in life in America, we don't feel that we need the Spirit to help us very much. We don't think we need the help. And it's kind of scary to think, isn't it, that God could leave the building. And maybe the truth is none of us would notice. Once when my brother, my older brother spoke here at ICC, he said something that has always stuck in my head. Feeling a bit insecure about preaching here, he said, I just feel like a monkey pointing (laughs) at a bunch of bananas. saying, dude, they're there, they're there. And the truth is, I may have read a few more books than him on banana acquisition, okay? But I too am just a monkey pointing at something so much bigger. Because if all we do is come out of these services, well, that was a good service. And kept, speaker kept me engaged, felt like I got something out of this. And we've kind of missed the whole point, haven't we? To not realize that there is the living God here in this place who wants to meet with us and empower us to live the life that he wills for us. Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worth following. And I think that helplessness, man, it really sneaks up on us, doesn't it? Because when you're younger... There is a real sense of control and power in your life because, truthfully, the goals are pretty easy to attain. It's all about getting good grades in school, and if you're Asian here, you know, you probably did pretty well. I'm sorry for the stereotype, you know? And you hit all the landmarks, and you go to the good schools, and you get the degrees, and you start working. And and the truth is you could do all of that without God just by the sheer capability that most of you possess in this room. But as you get older, let me tell you this. You can be fooled into that self-confidence to think that you can handle anything that life throws at you with your own power, your own wisdom. But none of us can nurture a healthy marriage or have healthy children and a fulfilling career and um, obtain long life and good health just through sheer willpower. That is not ours to decide single-handedly. And will that day come when you can really heartfelt say, I need you, God. I need you. I cannot do this by my own willpower, by my own strength.
I think we often don't want to pray a prayer like this. Because the truth is, even if we feel like our ship is sinking, we would rather captain that ship than hand the controls to somebody else, especially even if it's to God. John chapter 3, verse 5 to 8, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day had essentially domesticated God with all of their rules and traditions. In other words, they had, in essence, made God tolerable, made him predictable. But Jesus is pointing out, when the Spirit is at work among you, it's not like that. There is a mysterious working of God that you don't get to control. It's like the wind blowing through trees, and you don't even know. You hear the rustling of the leaves, but you don't know what the wind is doing or where it's going or where it came from. And he says, that's what it's like when the Spirit of God is at work among you. And there is actually something kind of terrifying about that, isn't it? Because we don't get to control that. And things that we can't understand fully or can't control completely make us uncomfortable. And in that discomfort, I think what the Bible is trying to tell us is that there is a very real danger of rejecting the Spirit's work in our life out of that fear. You cannot put God in a box. You cannot contain or control him with your religion. A.W. Tozer writes, The God of the modern evangelical rarely astonishes anybody. He's a very well-behaved God and very denominational and very much one of us. And we ask him to help us when we're in trouble and look to him to watch over us when we're asleep. The God of the modern evangelical isn't a God I could have much respect for. But when the Holy Ghost shows us God as he is, we admire him to the point of wonder and delight. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. If there is one terrible disease in the church of Christ, it is that we do not see God as great as he is. We're too familiar with God. Let me ask you, does your God ever surprise you anymore? If God always meets your expectations of what you think God should be like, this may be hard to hear, but it's likely that you're not worshiping the God of the Bible, but a God made in your own image. If he always meets your expectations of what you think he ought to do. Again, Francis Chan in Forgotten God says, when it comes down to it, many of us do not really want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Or more fundamentally, many of us don't want to be led by anyone other than ourselves. The truth is that the Spirit of the living God is guaranteed to ask you to go somewhere or do something you wouldn't normally want or choose to do. The Spirit will lead you to the way of the cross as he led Jesus to the cross. And that is definitely not a safe or pretty or comfortable place to be. 
The Holy Spirit of God will mold you into the person you were made to be. This often, incredi- this often incredibly painful process strips you of selfish- selfishness, pride, and fear. Does any one of us really want that? Do we really want that? You know, in Ephesians chapter 5.18, a verse that we just looked at a little while ago, Paul says not to get drunk, but to be, quote, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I think that's kind of problematic for a lot of us, isn't it? Because filling with the Spirit sounds like something that God has to do for us. But the strange thing is that Paul is putting it in the form of a command to us. Uh, In grammar... There are different kinds of verbs. Sorry, you're going to get a little, you know, nerdy on you here. An active verb <laughs> means that the subject is causing the action, like she hit him. A passive verb means that the subject is having the action done upon them, like she was struck by him. And we know active and passive. We're pretty familiar with those. But there is a third voice known as the middle voice, which means that although the subject receives the consequences of the action, he or she also has a part to play in causing that action to happen. She struck herself. Now, think about somebody getting drunk, that phrase, getting drunk, okay? Let me ask you, Is that active or passive action to say you got drunk? Well, it's actually a good illustration of the middle voice. Because clearly there's a sense in which the person who got drunk is acted upon by the alcohol, right? The alcohol has an impact on you. You are the receiver of that action. But you're not just an innocent victim in it, right? You were an active participant in causing that alcohol to have its impact on you. And the voice that is being used in this command here in Ephesians 5.18 is the middle voice. The middle voice. A good way to capture what the spirit of Paul is trying to say is to actually translate this command as get filled with the spirit. Get filled with the spirit. It is something God must do in you, but it is also something you must pursue actively because you have a part to play in this. Get filled with the Spirit of God. In other words, we need God to fill us with His Spirit, but we are also pursuing it, seeking it. And so what, as simple as it sounds, Jesus' invitation to us is simply this. Ask for the Spirit. Ask for the Spirit in your life. More and more, more and more of the Spirit's influence on you. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And everything, in other words, invite the Spirit's work in your life, his influence on your mind, your heart. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 70 
17 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. What Paul is saying here is that to be led by the Spirit of God is the hallmark of those who are children of God. And as that Spirit is at work in us, what the Spirit is doing is freeing us from all of the fears that once enslaved us. And rather than having a spirit of fear and slavery, the Spirit of God at work in us gives us the spirit of sonship, of daughtership. To know that we are children of God that allows us with confidence to come to him and say, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. I have about another 13 pages of notes in my research on this. And as I was thinking about preaching this, I thought like, man, I can just literally bombard you with theology here and just keep going at it. But I kind of want to wrap up here. And... I want to kind of keep it simple because I think if I just deluge you with more and more Bible verses, more and more subpoints, it's just going to kind of get watered down and lost here. And I thought, like, let me just end this message by sharing with you something a bit more personal in my life about what this looks like for me to see the Spirit at work in my life. And the truth is, I didn't want to share either of these illustrations, to be honest with you. Because there are some illustrations that I feel that can make me look good (laughs) and others that don't make me look so good, you know? But here it goes. I'll just share it with you. I, uh, I think for a long time I've just had this incredible envy for people who drive Teslas, okay? I'm a bit of a nerd, a geek, whatever terminology you want to use, and and the idea of an electric car is so, so attractive to me. And when I see someone driving a Tesla, I feel like they're driving the future, you know? And I want one so badly, but I know I can't afford one. But these EV cars have slowly been coming out to the market, and the prices have been dropping. And with that $7,500 tax rebate, it is really close to what I can afford. And in fact, Hyundai and Kia are releasing new EV cars this year. And I've done the math, and I realize I can afford this. But the problem is, I wondered, um, how would you guys (laughs) start talking about it if I pulled up to the church parking lot in that car? And, you know, my mind just started going to some really dark places, saying, I began to throw a pity party for myself, going, I can't buy the car I want because I'm a pastor. If I was a doctor, I could buy any of these cars. And I just, it was like, I was just ranting. What a double standard, you know? It's not fair. Just because I'm a pastor, I don't get to drive a nice car. 
and shame on you guys for judging me. I'm not even saying you would judge me, but I'm projecting all of this. I just feel the judgment as I pull into the parking lot with that car. I'm not kidding you. For weeks, I've been spending hours on YouTube just checking out every single EV car on the market. I, I literally think I was moments away from hunching over the keyboard going, my precious, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, it, it was really bad. It was. It got really dark. And I, it's scary to me how far I could get into this process and be so blind to it. And I just realized what God was nudging me, saying, Steve, what are you doing? Listen, I don't really think God cares all that much, whether your car is electric or gas or hybrid, frankly. But what I do know is that God cares about our hearts. And the thing was, this was eating me away and dehumanizing me, that we're not compatible with my following Jesus. And that was the work of the Spirit in my life in that moment. And I just surrendered it and said, I am clearly not in the right place to buy a car this year. So I just gave that up to God and said, this year I'm just not buying a new car. And I just want to know that whatever car I end up purchasing, what, I, what the Spirit was saying was this, you, you cannot buy a car until you, dummy, can at least say, Jesus is better, you know. <laughs> Jesus is better. And I think that's what the Spirit is always trying to testify to us. Jesus is better. Why have you put all of your hopes, all of your desires for this dumb car? It just takes you from one place to the next. Why does it mean so much to you what you're driving? One other little brief thing, and I've... Uh, I don't know. I, you guys actually look pretty okay, so maybe it's just me, but I definitely gained some weight during this pandemic, put on some COVID pounds, and now I'm trying really hard to lose it. Um, and it's not been easy, you know? And um, I'm only eating two meals a day, no snacks, no desserts, on and on. I don't want to get into all the details. <laughs> But it's really kind of gotten under my skin a bit. I keep weighing myself, and looking in the mirror, getting disappointed. And it's really kind of gnawing at me, my self-image, because of my body image. And, you know, I, I think I'm a person with pretty good discipline, but, you know, just last night, um, around 1 in the morning, I took out some peanuts and ate it. <laughs> and this morning I hated myself for it. You know? I'm just, by trying to do this, I'm discovering how complicated my relationship with food is, you know? How much I needed food to soothe me and give me a sense of comfort and happiness in my life. Everything else could be going wrong, but that ice cream makes me so happy, you know? But now that ice cream is denied to me. And somewhere in this journey about my weight, I think God has been coming to me through the work of his spirit and saying, in Jesus, you are complete. You are complete. There's nothing else that you need to strive for here. You are a child of God. 
There are other examples that I can give you, but I'll just stop there, okay? Um, Sin has this really insidious way of sneaking through the back door and taking a hold of our hearts in so many subversive ways that will derail you from becoming the person that God wills you to be. And the work of the Spirit is in a loving way to nudge you and say, Jesus is better. Jesus is all you need. And I pray that you would actively invite and seek that work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That it would not just be head knowledge, bunch of doctrine, but a heart knowledge that causes joy to erupt in you. Because in Christ, you have everything that you need. Amen? As we close the service, we're going to come to the table now. And so if you have your communion element in front of you there, we'd invite you to take it. Um, On the night that Christ was betrayed, he gathered his disciples around an upper room. And he said, to his disciples to eat this bread. And he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. And then he gave them a cup of wine and had them drink from that cup. And said, this cup of wine represents my blood shed for you in this new covenant. And so he says, whenever you eat from this bread and take from this cup, do so in remembrance of me. As we come to this table, Can I just invite you to a moment of honest reflection? Is Jesus really enough for you? Or is there this hunger that he just doesn't seem to satisfy in you? A longing, a want that still leaves you feeling empty. And I want to say that um, the work of the Spirit is to make Christ known to you in a very real and powerful way that you might know him intimately, personally, experientially. And so as we take from this bread and take from this cup, would you make that your prayer? I want to know you, Christ. I want to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings and in the power of your resurrected life. I want to know you more every day. Let's go ahead and take the bread first and then take the cup. Then just go ahead and uh, meditate for a few minutes here. I'll pray for us and then Jonathan and Joyce will come and lead us in a final time of closing worship. Father, I want to pray for every restless soul that's here today. Every heart that is aching and hurting. Everyone that feels empty or even dead inside. 
and is longing for that spark of life and joy and hope. Lord, may you be our good shepherd and lead us to those green pastures and those still waters. Set a table before our enemies. Let our cup overflow. Let us know this abundant life that you have promised to us. Even in a dry and weary land, may our hearts thirst for the living God. May that be the all-consuming passion of our hearts is to say, where can I go to meet with this God? To be in his presence. To know his love pouring over me. Because that love is life. Do that work in us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit who resides in us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.